The Family Life Cassette of the Month Club presents Dr. John MacArthur speaking on the topic, How's Your Love Life? And now, Dr. MacArthur. Tonight we come in our continuing study of 1 John to the third chapter and verse 11. 1 John 3, 11 to 24 is the passage we would like to focus on tonight. And I've entitled it, and it's not an original title, How's Your Love Life? I don't know whether it's close-up toothpaste or not, but somebody uses that line in a commercial. And the commercial asks the very, very important question, how's your love life? The idea is if it isn't all that it ought to be, you probably ought to get a new toothpaste or maybe a new deodorant or maybe a new mouthwash or whatever it is. People are concerned about their love life, apparently. Enough so to make some Madison Avenue public relations people feel that that's a good way to promote their product. As I was reading over 1 John chapter 3, just having been exposed to that commercial some hours before, I couldn't help but think that that's really the question John is asking. How's your love life? And he really uses that question as a monitor on the legitimacy of the claims of these people. There were people who were claiming to be Christians. And John says, well, I've got a good question that should really prove whether that claim is legitimate. Tell me about your love life. Because Christians have love for one another. One of the key tests of Christianity is love. When someone claims to be a Christian and says he's in union with Jesus Christ, John asks, well, tell me about your love life. For therein lies the proof of the claim. And we saw earlier in 1 John chapter 2 that a Christian is going to love God, love others, and not love what? The world. And by his love life, pretty well expose himself to be real or unreal. Now, in chapter 3, the subject is really sonship, and he's speaking of Christians as sons of God. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he calls them children of God. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he calls them children of God, again. And he says that as children of God, two things are going to result. Number one is righteousness, and number two is love. And that is the theme of chapter 3. Notice that righteousness is the theme of the first ten verses. Verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, as the Lord, is righteous. Verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot continue to commit habitual sin because he is born of God. Verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. So the first proof of a man's claim in his moral behavior is righteousness. The second is love. Look again at verse 10. Neither he that loveth not his brother. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How do we know that? Because we what? Love the brethren. All right. Two things then in John 3 are given as an expansion of the moral test that John gave in chapter 2 to define the Christian. He is one who does righteousness and who loves other believers in particular. 
Now, just to give you the background so you know where we are, the false teachers in the churches to which John wrote, likely in the area of Ephesus, could easily be identified. And there were a lot of false teachers, and they were propagating false doctrine. And John says it's not that tough to identify them. They are the ones who fail to behave on a continual righteous plane, and they fail to be continually loving other believers. Obedience and love are evidences of true sons of God. Now, that is the theme of chapter 3, and you'll notice verse 10 is the transition point where you have both of those, righteousness and love, included. Now, as we come to chapter 3, verse 11, we move into the area of love. Love for the brothers and sisters who are in Christ is an indispensable mark of a Christian. Christians will love one another. Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts and it will transmit itself out of there to other people. It is placed there by God, a very definite characteristic of Christianity Christians will love. Paul even said to the Thessalonians, you have no need that I teach you to love one another because you have been taught of God to do that. Christians will habitually love one another. There will be, remember, occasions when they do not, but the habit of their life will be the love of other Christians. Now notice verse 11. And we'll begin at our passage. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this is not merely a duty. That isn't the point that John is making. But it rather is a proof of something. He isn't saying, now, please love one another, as much as he's saying, now, remember that loving one another is the mark of a true Christian. The heretics were coming along and boasting that they were in union with God, that they knew the truth, but they had no love for other Christians. They had separated themselves from others. They had lorded over others. They felt themselves to be a sort of an upper echelon uh, type person, and they had no community spirit, no communion with other believers. John says, you know the message that you heard from the very beginning, and that means from the time you first heard the gospel, from the primitive teaching of the apostles, the message has always been the same. We should love one another. And the heretics, particularly the Gnostic heretics, were boasting about new teaching. We have new doctrine. And so repeatedly in 1 John, John goes back to the beginning. Remember chapter 1, verse 5? This then is the message which we have heard of him. Chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we've heard. He pushes them back to apostolic authority, back to the basic teaching, because this was that which was foundational and unchanging. And many new doctrines have come and gone. We go for our truth back to the very beginning, the doctrine of the apostles. So he says, reject new doctrine. Hold fast to the message which you have heard from the beginning, a message that was given to you at the time of your conversion. Chapter 2, verse 24, essentially the same thing. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Don't opt out for something new. Truth does not change. And the truth about Christian conduct, mark this, people, mark it. The truth about Christian conduct is just as unalterable as the truth about Christ. It is just as unalterable to say that a Christian must follow the pattern of righteousness and love as it is to say that he must follow the pattern of faith in Jesus Christ. A man who claims to be a Christian and who does not habitually practice righteousness, 
A man who claims to be a Christian and does not habitually practice love is no Christian at all. And we saw last time that by habitually practicing, we mean that this is the pattern of his life. There will be exceptions. There will be times of sin. But when you become a Christian, no longer do you have total sin. No longer are you totally dominated by sin. You begin to do righteous things. This is proof of your Christianity. And then you begin to love the brothers. And what was the message verse 11 said? What was the message? We should love one another. Now, John develops this important theme here in chapter 3. He has spoken of it before. He will develop it in a different way again. Now, an interesting thing, just to file in your computer somewhere, the epistle of John, 1 John, repeats the same thing over and over. Some have likened it to a spiral that gets larger and larger and larger, just going in circles with the same argument, only each time spreading the argument over a wider area and encompassing more territory. Some have likened it to a spiral going the other way, penetrating deeper and deeper and deeper into the same themes. That's basically what it does. It cycles around the same concepts over and over and over again. You'll see that even when we get to chapter 5. He'll still be talking about righteousness and love. But in a different way, in a different format, with different terms, and expanding it. Now, I want to add a footnote for you here. If ever you're a teacher, you'll remember two things. Two things you always want to remember about your pupils. And I remember these about you. Number one is forgetfulness. Whatever you teach them, remember, they will forget it. That's right. First thing you remember about students is they forget. So you know what you do when you teach? You repeat yourself. That's right. Line upon line, precept upon precept, so forth. The second thing you remember about pupils is not only forgetfulness, but familiarity. If you keep saying the same thing in the same way, they won't hear it anymore. So what you do when you're a good teacher is you keep saying the same thing in a different way so they don't know it's the same thing. You didn't know that, did you? You learned all this months ago. Peter says, I will not cease to put you in remembrance. But isn't it amazing how it always comes in a different way and you can get excited about old truth because it comes in a new package. So John repeats himself, but never the same. Always different. Now I want you to look at verses 12 to 24. And John's going to talk about love. And he's going to do it in a very interesting way. Now watch this. First of all, he's going to characterize the children of the devil. And then he's going to characterize the children of God. And by doing that, he presents a tremendous picture of what Christian love is. First of all, let's look at verses 12 to 17, the characteristics of the children of the devil. The characteristics of the children of the devil. You say, I didn't know the devil had children. Oh, yes. He has a lot of them. Did you know he has more of them than God does? Yes, he has a lot of children. You say, who are they? They're all the people who don't know Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you are of your father, what? The devil. Everybody isn't in the family of God. Everybody's in the family of God or the family of the devil. Let's look at the characteristics of the children of the devil as related to love. We're going to see three characteristics. Number one, murder. They say, it doesn't sound like love. Of course not, it's the opposite. Because the characteristic of the children of the devil is the absence of love. Number one is murder. Watch verse 12. Now, he says, you know what the message is that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not like Cain. 
Interesting. That's the only proper name used in the epistle of John, other than God or Christ. The only time he brings up anybody in history is Cain. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and killed his brother. And why killed he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Interesting. Here is the lowest level of human relationships. Murder. You can't sink to any worse relationship with a human being than to kill him. Right? That's it. Cain is the classic example in all history of a murderer. And John introduces Cain as a murderer. Now, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 4 and show you the story of Cain and Abel. And Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, you say, that's obvious. She was the only other woman in the world. Well, the word know doesn't mean he knew who she was. It means they had relationships together. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She again bore his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. You see, he was a worshiper of God his own way. Religious man. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. You say, well, why? Why was God arbitrary? God had already revealed to them, obviously, that there was only one way to offer sacrifice to him, and that was a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sins. God had instituted from the very beginning the blood sacrifice as the proper worship. And Abel obeyed that. But there's another kind of religion besides the religion of grace, and that's the religion of human effort and works. And look what Cain brought, the fruit of the ground, what he himself had planted and harvested. He offered God what he wanted to offer God, not what God wanted. He invented his own religion. He was going to worship God in his own way, and God would have none of it. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. That means his face turned into a scowl. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you shall not, shall you not be accepted. If you did what was right, Cain, I would have accepted you. And if you did not, then a sin offering lies at the door. In other words, if you didn't do right, Cain, go make a sin offering. That's all you have to do, and it'll be all right. Just follow it through. But he didn't want to make a sin offering because he was a rebel at heart. He didn't want to do it God's way because he was a rebel. He didn't want the religion of grace and the religion of obedience. He wanted the religion of human effort and works and his own design. No deal. Verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. He murdered him. Now go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Now, it says that Cain murdered him. Why did he murder him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, that's one word that starts with a J. What is it? Jealousy. Now, just a little look at this particular person, Cain, and then we'll broaden the spectrum so you'll understand what John's saying. Cain was of that wicked one. The word wicked one here is paneras. And paneras is a strong word, stronger than the, the word kakas, which is the general word for evil. Paneros means evil in active opposition to good. It is sort of organized evil. 
you might distinguish it by saying this, a man who is kakas, and that's the other word for bad or evil, the man who is kakas is sort of willing to just kind of be evil and perish in his own corruption. But the Pane Ras person seeks to drag everybody else along with him. He wants to organize evil so everybody does it. And Cain was of that Pane Ras one. And who is that evil one who wants to organize evil and drag everybody else into it? Satan. He was out of Satan. He was a child of Satan. And that's evident because he was a murderer. And God's children are not murderers. They love one another. They love their brothers. They don't murder their brothers. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44 says he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And the first crime that he perpetuated was murder through Cain. Now you notice the verse says Cain killed his brother. The word really is murdered. Svadzo. You know what it means? Interesting word. It means to butcher by cutting the throat. You ever wondered how Cain killed Abel? He cut his throat. Most likely. Have you ever wondered why he did that? Do you realize that probably when Cain and Abel were born, no one had ever died? The seeds of death were already implanted right in the sin of Adam and Eve, but no one had yet died as far as we know. What would they have known about death then? What would they have known about how people die or the cause of death? They wouldn't have known much. But God had revealed to them a certain kind of worship. And that was that they were to bring an animal and offer that animal as a sacrifice. This very Greek term is the term that is used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to speak of slaying animals for Levitical sacrifices. Evidently, the only way that Cain knew that something died was in the way that God had revealed that they were to sacrifice animals. And so he did to his brother precisely what he had been instructed to do to the animals that were to be given by sacrifice. Maybe that's the only way he understood death to occur. He cut his throat in order that the blood might be shed in the sacrificial animal. And here Cain does it to his brother. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that... God instituted a pattern of sacrifice to bring men to himself and the first of men perverted it and turned it into murder. The human race learned to murder when it was taught to worship. That draws the line pretty clean. Say, why did he kill his brother? That's what it says in verse 12. Why did he do it? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. You say, that's a lousy reason. Jealousy. He hated his brothers being accepted by God. But jealousy lay at the base of Cain's murder. And that's what life is like for the children of the devil. They murder. You say, but John, oh, they don't all do that. No, you're right. They don't all do that. They're not all. Not everybody murders. There were 1,721 murders in the last recorded 10-month period of time for the United States. So they're working at it. But not everybody does it. But let me tell you something else. They may not all murder, but let me go a step further and see the next characteristic of a child of the devil. Hate. Verse 13. Marvel not, or stop marveling literally. My brethren, if the world is hating you, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Now, most people have never murdered anybody, but uh, you want to hear something interesting? The only difference between hate and murder is the act. The attitude is the same. Is that right? 
The only difference between hate and murder is the act. And you know, there are a lot of haters, haters who don't murder for one reason, fear of consequences. If they could do it and get away with it and have no punishment and no guilt and no social negative reaction, they would do it. In God's eyes, mark it, hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. It's just minus the act, but the attitude is the same. Now, John develops this. He says, the world's going to hate you, so don't marvel about it. it. You could translate this verse literally this way. Since the world hates you, don't be shocked. The world does hate you. It shouldn't surprise you. Cain was the prototype of the world, and he manifests the ugly qualities that Satan generates in the life of every one of his children. They are hateful. The world system began with Cain and its hate has perpetuated itself all the way along. Stop being surprised by this. The hatred of the world is no, no marvel. It's nothing to be surprised about. We expect the devil to hate God and so the children of the devil are going to hate the children of the Lord. You say, well, I'm not too sure that they hate me. I'm, I'm nice. Yeah, well, maybe they don't know you very well. Maybe you're too nice about some things. Or maybe you just haven't really begun to live godly in the face of the world and confront them. And I'm not saying that everybody in the world is horrible and can't love and so forth. I'm telling you that these are the general patterns of godless people. Some of them are gentle people and good people in terms of man standards. But generally speaking, and we'll get to those people, generally speaking, the world is characterized by murder and by hate. It is to be expected that the wicked system will continue to hate the believer. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How do we know that? Because we what? Have you ever doubted your salvation? You ever said, boy, I don't know if I'm really saved. I think about that a lot. I, I... Boy, I know I goof up and... Uh, uh, he says, we know that we've passed from death into life because we what? Do you have a continuous and habitual love for Christians? Do you? If you do, guess what? You've passed from death to life. The world does not habitually and continually love Christians. We know we've passed from death into life because we love the brother, and he that loves not his brother abides in death. The dead ones don't love, the living ones love. So if I love, I'm alive. I've been redeemed and born again. It's a dramatic, dramatic construction here. The dramatic we, we do not hate. We love, let the world hate. We love. And that causes us to know we've passed from death into life. We've crossed over. We've resurrected from the dead. We're alive to God. We love. Only Christians love. And love is the surest test of divine life. Where there is no love, you have spiritual death. And by that I mean this. And I, I can't, you know, give you all the boundaries to this concept. Let me just say this. Look in your own heart and examine it. Do you love Christians? Do you love the fellowship of Christians? Do you seek the fellowship of Christians? Is your highest desire in being with humankind to be with those that name the name of Jesus Christ? If you do, you have passed from death to life. If you do not, 
you're still dead. The world hates Christians and continues to persecute them. Now verse 15. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in it. The literal Greek word is a manslayer. It's a rather vivid word. But you see, he says here, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, he doesn't mean that in a literal sense, but in a moral sense. Hatred, morally, in the eyes of God is the same as murder. If you're going to hate somebody, in God's eyes, that is the same as murder. And you know that nobody who is a murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Murderers do not have eternal life in them. And again, you have the idea here of the habitual practice. There may be a Christian who at some time in some situation committed murder, but it wasn't the habit of his life. And hate wasn't the habitual practice of his life. That would have had to have been a very, very strange exception. We have to allow for God's grace in that. But again, John is speaking in general patterns. And John is saying the general pattern of life is that a believer loves... And an unbeliever hates. Let me give you some scripture to support this kind of a thought. I think it's Proverbs 6, 17. Here are some things the Lord hates. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood are murderous hands. Such hands the Lord hates. And the Lord does not hate his own children. Murderers are set against God. In 1 Timothy, verse 9 of chapter 1, we read this. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And here he says these people, in effect, have no part in God's law. Anybody who murders is set apart from God. God's children... Do not commit murder. And I add to that this divine principle in 1 John chapter 3. He that hates is guilty of murder, verse 15 says. In God's eyes, the ethic is the same. Now I want you to look at Matthew 5 and I want to show you how this works. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard, this isn't anything new, you've been aware of this. You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill. Now of course you knew that, this is one of the commandments. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which was something you shouldn't say to your brother, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. In other words, the way you treated your brother in terms of attitude was as significant to Jesus as what you did in terms of act. That's because in God's eyes the attitude is equal to the act. And so you see some people don't murder as a way of life. Some people, not all people in the world are killing Christians, killing good people. Some are. In God's eyes, it's the same. You say, but not everybody murders and not everybody hates. No, there's a third characteristic of the children of the devil. That is indifference. 
Children of the devil, characterized by murder and hate, abide in spiritual death. And the end of verse 15 says they have no eternal life abiding in them. But there's another thing. Some of them aren't murderous. They aren't full of venomous hate, but they're indifferent. Verse 16. By this perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's good, sees his brother have need, shuts up his compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? Here's a guy who comes along and says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, sees a guy that has need, doesn't meet his need. You tell me he's a Christian? John says no. That's indifference. And the world is characterized by indifference, apathy, unconcern for anybody outside its own system. And for that matter, really, for most people, for anybody in its system. Don't forget that the world murders its own. It isn't just what Christians don't do that marks them. They don't murder and they don't hate habitually. But it is what they do that marks them. They care for each other with sacrificial love. The world is indifferent. And again, we get back to the same concept. People, look at those verses I just read you. Love is not defined as an attitude. It is not defined as an emotion. It is defined as an act of self-sacrifice. Do you see that? We've gone over this so many times. We're not even talking about the fact that we are to love emotionally. We are to love in terms of the deeds of self-sacrifice. Look what it says in 16. Here's how we know God loved us because he what? Because he said, I love you. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette over for the completion of Dr. MacArthur's message. No, because he what? Lay down his life for us. And what should we do? Lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is self-sacrifice. Cain hated and murdered his brother. That's how Satan's children behave. Christ loved and died giving his own life for the life of those he loved. Christ's self-sacrifice. He gave himself for us. His love was beyond anything we could imagine. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that he died leaving us an example. And here John says, as he laid down his life, you ought to lay yours down. Not like the world in verse 17 that is indifferent to those in need. You say, well, I'll tell you, John, if, maybe if I ever had a chance to die for somebody, I might do that. But I never do get that opportunity. Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, that's why verse 17 was added, because you see, true love isn't confined just to dying for somebody. It says in 17, whoever has this world's good. You want to know who that is? That's us. We've got it. We're loaded. Sees his brother have need and shuts up his compassion. How dwelleth the love of God in him? Now, people, that gets pretty practical, doesn't it? Love isn't just that great, oh, I'm willing to die for you. I love you so much. I'll pay the supreme. Love is, oh, you have a need here. It's willingness to surrender possessions, comforts, everything that has value in my life, I'm willing to give to you if you need it. I'll notice something. Whosoever hath this world's good and seeth his brother. This is especially to be given to those who are our brothers in Christ. This isn't teaching that we're to run all over the world throwing money at all these people indiscriminately. 
You could pacify yourself by doing that because you really never get close to anybody. But the idea is that within the community of believing people, we are to meet each other's needs. And even outside, as God brings people across our path. But in verse 16, you have the general lay down our lives for the brethren. And you know, you can, you can sort of think of that in generality, but he particularizes it by speaking of a certain brother who has a need in verse 17. I suppose the best illustration of this is Luke 10, or one good one. Verse 30, Jesus answering said, certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, taking a little trip down the desert, get a little sun. He fell among thieves, and they used to say the Jericho road was just swarming with them. Stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, here comes one of the children of the devil. Walks down there and sees this guy laying there half dead. Here's a Jew. Looks at this man. Goes clear around the other side of the road. Don't want to get defiled. Touch that man. See? And a Levite. Was at the place. Looked on him and passed by on the other side. Certain Samaritan. Half-breed. Journeyed. Came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatever you spend more, when I come again, I will repay you. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? Pretty obvious. Two of them, children of the devil. One of them acted as a child of God in love to another. All three of those guys were responsible to help that man. You say, why? I didn't know that guy. I don't have any obligation to him. I'm not related to that fellow. You know why they had a responsibility to him? Number one, they recognized a need. Number two, they had what he needed. Now, let me just simplify it. You are in debt. Listen to this. And I am too. You and I are in debt to whoever needs what I have. Did you get that? I am in debt to whoever needs what I have. And if I don't live that kind of life, then John questions my salvation. I'm not willing to give. Two things make you responsible for other Christians. If they have a need and if you've got what they need. That's all that matters. You'll notice it says, shuts up his bowels, and, and that's a strange word for us in modern day. It means his heart. That was the term they spoke of the seat of a man's emotions being in the bowel. We say the heart, and it's neither place, really. That's just some kind of an identification physically. What it means is the man who turns off his compassion closes out his feelings. If you have the habit of being uncaring and indifferent, then John questions your salvation. He says if you're a murderer, a hater, or indifferent, life doesn't dwell in you. You have no eternal life abiding in you. Mark those people. They're the children of the devil. Children of God will make supreme sacrifices for one another. Just to give you another illustration, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Can't resist this. I just love this. Paul's writing the Philippians. He says, I just want to tell you a little about Epaphroditus. He's a terrific guy. He longed after you, verse 26 of Philippians 2. He longed after you all and was full of heaviness because you had heard that he had been sick. <laughs> Isn't that something? You know, when he found out that they knew he was sick, 
the, he knew they would be sad, and so he got sad because they would be sad because he was sick. <laughs> what a guy. What a heart. And he was sick, verse 27. He was sick near to death. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me. What would I have done without him? I'd have had sorrow on sorrow. Well, you say, how did he get so sick? Verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, <laughs> he was near unto death, not regarding his life. Greek word is parabola. It means to roll a dice. He gambled with his life for your sake. That's exciting, isn't it? And he was near to death because he gambled with his life. Do you risk anything in a Christian life? Or do you measure it out carefully, calculating so that you have enough of whatever it is for you? You haven't learned how to make a sacrifice like Epaphroditus did. He gambled with his life. He was willing to pay the price of death. I don't really know whether any of us understand that. God help us to understand it. Paul had the same idea. He said to the Philippians, if I be offered on the sacrifice of your joy, I rejoice. If I die getting you to the Lord, I'm, I'm happy to die. I'm expendable. I'll gamble. I'll risk. I'll roll my life out. And if it goes, it goes. We don't know about that kind of sacrifice. And I think it's full of sense. But we know something about it. It has to be part of our lives if we're real Christians. That's what John's saying. We're to love the way Jesus loved. We're to bend and wash feet. We're to be willing to give our lives. We're to be willing to give a man what he needs that we have, whatever the price. And even if it's a high risk, Christians share. That's part of it. That's part of what Christian life is all about. 1 Timothy 6.17, Charge the rich people in this age to not be high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And they should do good, be rich in good works, and ready to distribute and willing to share. Hebrews 13.16, Do good and share. For with such sacrifices, with such what? Sacrifices. Sacrificial sharing, God is well pleased. Now go back to 1 John. You see what John is doing here is giving us a portrait of the children of the devil. He tells us they are murderers, they are haters, they are indifferent. It's an ugly picture. Hatred characterizes our world. Look at it. Crime, war. Hatred characterizes the world. Listen. Its prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil. It issues in murder, hatred, indifference, and is evidence of spiritual death. But on the other hand, he begins in verse 18 to introduce us to the children of God. And he says, love characterizes them. The prototype is Christ. It originates in God, it issues in self-sacrifice, and is the evidence of eternal life. Let's look at it. Love. Verse 18. My little children, here's the characteristic of the children of God. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in what? Deed and truth. Our love is to be in action, not in word. Profession is not enough. Action is essential. What does he say? What does he mean? He says, let us not love in word. He means that's all talk and no action love. That's verbal. Well, what does he mean when he says, let's not love in tongue? That gives the implication of hypocrisy. 
Don't let your love be all talk and no action, and don't let your love be hypocritical, but love in deed, that is compared to word, and love in truth, that is compared to tongue. Let it be in action and in honesty. Truly love in deed. Don't hypocritically love with your mouth. That's the contrast. Genuine acting love. I say again, love is deeds. He's saying don't love emotionally. Don't love with your attitude. Love with your action. Love is deeds. Love is self-sacrifice. And nothing less than that is love. And the Christian is going to love. And his love is to be in deed and in truth. That's just how it's going to be with us. Because God has given us his love. Now, there are some exciting blessings, and I'm just going to give these to you quickly. Some exciting blessings for people who love, for Christians. Number one, assurance. I'll give you three. Assurance. In 1 John 3, verse 19, By this we know we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts. By what? By loving in deed and in truth. In action. In other words, if you say to yourself, Am I a Christian? I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Have you shown sacrificial love to other believers? And if you can remember such deeds, he says, that will assure your heart that you are because the children of the devil don't do that. Our hearts are going to be hit with uncertainty, insecurity, self-condemnation. And John says an answer for it is loving in deed and truth. By this we know we are of the truth. Love is the final objective test for our Christian profession. When you can point to deeds of self-sacrifice in your life, you can say, hey, be gone doubts, be gone uncertainties, be gone insecurity. Look what I did in the power of the Spirit in showing love, in deeds of love, in action. The world doesn't do that. You see, there are actual things we can point to. When you want assurance of your salvation, not just feelings and not just claims and not just intentions, but things we have done assure our hearts. The fruit of love is assurance. The word assurance there, assure our hearts, is patho. It is means to persuade, and Thayer says it means to tranquilize. You get your heart all upset, you know how to tranquilize it? Reminded of deeds of love that you've done. Soothe it, pacify it when it becomes alarmed. When your conscience starts pounding and probing and saying, well, you may not be for real, you may not be legitimate, look at this, look at this that you've done. You've... Just remind yourself of what you have done and deeds of self-sacrificing love that are characteristic only of Christians. And there you can assure, tranquilize, calm, and give confidence to your heart. And no unsaved sinner can have that kind of assurance. Verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You know, your heart will condemn you sometimes. Mine does. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Did you know that? Sometimes I condemn myself for the wrong thing. You know, sometimes I, I expect things out of myself that God doesn't even expect. You know, I got little legalistic things. You shouldn't do this. Sometimes I get lazy. You ever get that way? And I say to myself about the time I'm working on a message for six or seven hours in a row, I am going to quit and just do nothing. And I'll sit there for a couple hours and I'll hear my conscience saying, indolent. Oh, thou sluggard. Don't you know the ant can't build his house unless he labors? 
you're lying around again. My conscience would do that to me. And you know, I said to my conscience, you're all wet. I am tired. I'm going to rest. My conscience is wrong. I got some strange little thing in there. It messes up sometimes. But you know, other times, my conscience is right. Did you know that? Is yours ever right? Hooey. And when it's right, it really comes down, doesn't it? You say, well, when it's wrong, what do you do? Reject it. When it's right, what do you do? Confess it. And your conscience is going to condemn you. That's what he means in verse 20 when he uses the term heart. If your conscience condemns you, just remember God is greater than your heart and knows all things. And if I can add something to the verse, and he doesn't condemn you. Is that terrific? Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. Are you glad God doesn't condemn you? Next time your conscience condemns you, start saying, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. I can't take this. Just remember that God doesn't even condemn you. You say, but God doesn't know me like I know myself. Oh, God is greater than our heart, verse 20, and knows what? All things. And he doesn't condemn you. And when you start getting your conscience condemning you, where do you go for your security? Do you say, conscience, cool it, I've been baptized. <laughs> conscience, I have gone to church. Conscience, I've done some good things. No, you know what you say, conscience. I have exhibited in the pattern of my living... Love for the brethren manifest in deeds, conscience. And by this, I know I belong to God because God's children alone love as a pattern of life. And God, who is greater than my heart, will confirm the fact that I stand uncondemned. Condemning conscience robs me of assurance. I look at the failures of my life and all of a sudden my conscience starts taking axe blows to the tree of assurance and it comes crumbling down and I say oh I'm such a failure and then I remember but I have done deeds of love the character of my life has been loving toward Christians and making sacrifices for their behalf deeds of that kind of love that's characterized my life yeah but boy God really knows you God knows the secret yeah but God who is greater than my heart doesn't condemn me he wants to assure me. I think of John 21 where the Lord said to Peter, Do you love me? Now what did Peter say? Oh, I, I love you, Lord. I love you. And then say, Boy, I hope he doesn't find out what I really feel. No, he said, Lord, you know all things. You know what? I love you. He appealed to God. As a Christian, I assure my heart by saying, I have done deeds of love. God, you know I have. I appeal to you. You're greater than my conscience. Don't let my conscience do this to me. Don't let my conscience rob my joy. Don't let my conscience steal my security and my confidence. God, you don't condemn my heart. Why should I condemn myself? See, but how can God overlook things? Listen, people. God knows that the worst that is in you as a Christian is superficial. Is that beautiful? The worst that is in you is superficial. He looks down in the deep things and sees the truth. Like Romans 7, Paul says, Deep down, I love the law of God. God sees the deep reality. Black deeds may rise to the surface to condemn us. God sees the true love that's deep down in our heart that is revealed in deeds of self-sacrifice to others. I may go out and do something terrible in sin, but God isn't going to condemn me for that sin because He knows I'm His child because the pattern of my life has been godliness and the pattern of my life has been sacrificial love toward others. And so when I sin, it's something that's on the surface. 
It's as if it isn't the real me, and that's Romans 7. It's not I that do it, but sin that is in me. Now, I'm not telling you to take sin lightly. God doesn't take it lightly, and he'll forgive it, and he won't condemn you, but he'll wrap you a few times in the knuckles for it. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Well, the first thing that happens when you love your brothers as Christians is you have assurance. It assures us we are his children. We love the family. Let me give you a second thing that comes. A second blessing. We'll just mention this quickly. Answered prayer. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, love banishes self-condemning. When I recognize love and I recognize the manifestation of love in the deeds that I have done, my self-condemnation, my insecurity is gone, and I all of a sudden have confidence toward God. If our heart condemn us not, you see, all of a sudden, because I realize there's been acts of love in my life, I no longer accept the condemnation of my conscience, then I realize that I have confidence toward God. God doesn't even condemn me. And if you're still condemning yourself and hammering away on your own conscience with, with artificial guilt, then you're playing God. You're saying you're a higher authority than He. So if you'll just accept the fact that He doesn't condemn you, if you'll confess your sin and turn from it and recognize the deeds of love in your life that prove you're His child, then your heart won't condemn you anymore and you'll have confidence toward God. And when you have confidence toward God, you will ask and receive of Him. That's answered prayer. Well, that's an exciting thing. Now, I want you to notice there are three conditions for answered prayer. Three conditions. Condition one, no unconfessed sin. No unconfessed sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord, what? Will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So, unconfessed sin is one of the prerequisites. Now here, that is implicated here. In verse 20 and 21, you have the idea of condemnation that is dealt with. And all of a sudden, verse 21, the heart no longer condemns. You've confessed it. You've turned from it. You're reassured. No unconfessing. Second thing. Second condition for prayer is obedience to the word. Verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we obey his what? Commandments. The second then is to obey the word. 1 Peter 3, 7 even says a husband and wife can't get their prayers answered unless they're obedient. So obedience to the word is the second. The third condition for answered prayer is doing what pleases him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his, capital H, sight. Now you want answered prayer? Number one, no one confess sin. Number two, you're obeying the word. Number three, you're doing what pleases him. James says most people pray to consume it on their own lusts. Now, beloved, what are we saying here? The habitual behavior of a Christian is what? Love, obedience, doing what pleases him, and so his prayers are answered. What a tremendous promise. Love characterizes God's children, results in assurance and answered prayer. Last thing. Thirdly, it results in abiding, verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he hath given us. Now he said in verse 22, commandments plural, he reduces it to a single command with three parts. Notice it, verse 23. Here is the command, that we should believe 
that we should love one another, and verse 24, that we should obey his what? Commandments. Now, everything in the Christian life is summed up in three parts, and they're inseparable. They go together. They can't be separated. The believer believes, obeys, and loves. The result of that? Beautiful. We dwell in him, verse 24. He dwells in us. And by this we know that he abides in us. How? By the spirit which he's given us. The third great blessing that comes to those who love, those who are the children of God, is the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. He says we are to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. This is salvation. We are to love one another as he gave commandment. This is present tense habitual action. And we are to keep his commandments. And again, it's present tense habitual action. As we believe and love and obey, he abides in us and we in him. Well, there you have the, the distinction. Child of the devil is characterized by an unloving heart. Murder, hate, and indifference. The children of God are characterized by love. And the result is assurance. Not only assurance, answered prayer. Not only that, but the knowledge that we abide in Him and He in us. And that knowledge comes to us because He gives us His Holy Spirit. The proof that you're a Christian is simple. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the brothers? Do you obey His commandments? Let's pray. Father, again, we are made aware of simplicity of your truth. And yet we know, Father, that even in its simplicity, it is deep. We've not been able to cover all those things, all of those possibilities that could have been examined from this passage tonight. We've never been able to plumb all the depths of understanding, nor, Father, can we make every single application of this truth to every given situation. Because only you really know. But Father, thank you for giving us the general principles. Thank you for helping us to see that it isn't the, the things that people claim, it's the things that they are that make them to be Christians. To say that you're a child of God and to have the religious forms and rituals and routines doesn't mean anything if there's murder, hate, indifference in your life toward the family of God. But on the other hand, to prove to be a Christian by believing continuously in the Lord Jesus Christ, by loving continually and habitually the brothers, and by obeying your commands is indeed to verify that we are your children. For those are the things that manifest who we are. Help us, Father, who are your children, to behave as children, to walk as children, pleasing in your sight. These things we ask in the name of our Lord. Amen. This is the end of Dr. MacArthur's message. For information regarding other Family Life speakers, please write to the Family Life Cassette of the Month Club, Post Office Box 1299, El Cajon, California. The spelling for El Cajon is capital E-L, capital C-A-J-O-N, California, 92022.